Morning, everyone. Morning. Well, we are at the final hurdle of this series. And uh, yeah, we're looking at speaking the gospel today, which it feels like I've spoken about quite a few times, which is good because it uh, it's very much on my heart. So we're going to read that um, passage one last time. It seems only appropriate to read our passage, doesn't it? So that's going to be Acts 2, 42 to 47. It's going to be up on the screen, but um, if you have your Bible or your phone, do have it out. Um, it's really verse 47, which is going to be my focus, but there's going to be some big picture stuff today as well. So, the Fellowship of the Believers. Let's read it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Amen. So I'm going to start by reading from one of my favorite poets. What life have you if you have not life together? There is no life that is not in community, and no community not lived in praise of God. Even the anchorite, the religious recluse who meditates alone, for whom the days and nights repeat the praise of God, prays for the church, the body of Christ incarnate. And now you live dispersed on ribbon roads, and no man knows or cares who is his neighbor, unless his neighbor makes too much disturbance. But all dash to and fro in motor cars, familiar with the roads, and settled nowhere. Those words from T.S. Eliot, I'll be impressed if you got that, were written nearly 90 years ago. But I reminded myself of that poem. I think they paint a picture which is actually all too familiar to us in 2022. I think there's a relational desert in our culture. I think there's an online community without commitment, where convenience only satisfies for a while. Loneliness is so well documented, isn't it? And individualism and the self, more prevalent than it's ever been. But people need and want community. So I'm just going to simply start where I'm going to end, which is that the church, that we must be an oasis in that cultural desert. The church must exist to pave the way to Jesus Christ. And when the church does, and of course how she does it, then what we see, we see growth. We see growth. And I'm in no doubt that a healthy Acts 2, 42 to 47 church attracts people to Jesus Christ. No doubt whatsoever. I think we've seen it. I think we've been blessed by it. So I'm going to spend just a little bit of time recapping um, hopefully mapping out some helpful reminders to us. So I'm going to start by just asking that question, what were they devoted to? And they were devoted to teaching. It tells us, doesn't it? Devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to communion, the breaking of the bread. And they were devoted to prayer. Those are the four things that the passage tells us that they were devoted to. Everyone with me? Good. 
As a result then, this is the interesting stuff I think for us. As a result, number one, they were changed. They were changed. To be more like, to be more like Christ, Christ, Christ-like, Christ-focused, they were changed by the Spirit. It tells us that everyone was filled with awe. It tells us that they, they sold property and possessions. It tells us that stuff mattered less. Jesus and the needs of others mattered more. So they were changed. Number two, they also maintained. They realized how important it was to carry on going to the temple courts. Remember reading that? In other words, the regular stuff of worship, that was still important. And they maintained the community even though it grew rapidly. Nobody went without. They maintained. Thirdly, they were grateful. They were grateful. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They praised God as they did so. They worshipped. And fourthly, they enjoyed the favour of all people and they grew in number. The Lord added to their number daily. In other words, it was deeply, deeply attractive to others. Deeply attractive. And so my next question is a a big one. (laughs) My next question is, what are you devoted to? What are we devoted to? If you were to create an honest timetable of your week, your month, if you were to do one of those weird exercises where you were to put cameras up all all over your house and every room, what would they reveal as to what you are devoted to? Are we devoted to Jesus Christ and the bride, his church? Because we need to be clear. I think we need to be really clear that the reason why we're here, folks, this thing called church, it's a response to the gospel. Jesus is the magnetic center. What we are truly drawn to must always be Jesus. Not a human, don't ever come to me. Not a building. It's not that, but it's about what Jesus has done for us in forgiving our sins and bringing us into right relationship with God. And church, what we're doing right now is the magnetic, sorry, it's the gathering around of that magnetic center of the good news of Jesus Christ and then proclaiming the kingdom of God. And you know, much of our society, I think, I certainly get that impression when I look at the news, the headlines, much of our society, whether they know it or not, they love the kingdom of God. They are concerned with justice. They are concerned about defeating oppression, setting captives free, eradicating poverty, alleviating loneliness. I do think they're concerned about this. And these are all good things, aren't they? These are kingdom things. The problem is, as Johnny Cash and U2 once sang, they say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Do you know, many in our culture, they want the kingdom, but they don't want the king. Because they either don't know the king, or have heard rumors about the king which just aren't accurate. And so my life, our lives, the life of a Christian, should always be devoted to the loyal service of the king. King Jesus. A king who said that he came to seek and save the lost. That's Luke 19.10. To seek and save the lost. And you know, a king's last words are really important, aren't they? They're really important. Our king's last words, Jesus' last words, uttered from his mouth on earth were this. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything 
I have commanded you. Lisa made some important points about obedience last week, didn't she? So what is our response to the king's words? Because I don't think this is a king wanting his heirs just to sit still, protect their little domains, just to rest easy. And the thing is, we've all played hide and seek, haven't we? We've all played that game, yeah? That word seek, that's the word Jesus used. I'm not brilliant at English. I wasn't taught English particularly well, but I know it's a verb. It's a doing word, to seek. In other words, you've got to go looking. You've got to go looking for those who are hiding, who are lost. If any of you have ever been lost, I have, you will know the feeling that you get when you are found. Remember that feeling? Profound relief, profound joy. And you know, the last time I spoke on this subject as part of the evangelism series, Andrew's response, including the phrase, uh, which has stayed with me ever since, this is not a dress rehearsal. I thought it was just so powerful. He also reminded us that though we are saved, we are still held to account for what we are doing during our lives. And I have a feeling that when we do meet Jesus, when our earthly pilgrimage comes to an end, and of course it will, he's not going to be patting us on the back about our careers, the accomplishments of our children, how nice our gardens were, even how well we knew our Bibles. Although, of course, we can reflect them in those things. I'm not saying that. I think he's more likely to ask you the question, did you lead people to my throne? Did you tell people about the kind of king I am? And so what is our response to this king? This king who we know to be completely devoted to us. How can we help ourselves and others be a people devoted to Christ and to his church so that we may enjoy the favor of all people and have our numbers added to? I mean, that's a big question, isn't it? And it's a question that some parts been answered over the last seven weeks, so I'm not going to repeat messages that have already been given to us. But what I would encourage you to do is that if you've missed any of those or if you want to be reminded, then do so. Review. Review. Because... You want to be formed by good, godly stuff. And I'll get onto a little bit more of that in a minute. We want to be formed by good, godly stuff. You know, we are currently trying to repurpose the bottom of our garden. Mr. Fox, fantastic Mr. Fox, actually, he got two rounds of hens. So we've decided to do something else there. And what we've had to do, we've, we've had to think about how we create a path to the bottom of this garden? How are we going to pave a route to the fruit that we are going to grow in raised beds? Fruit that we will plant, that we will water, that we're going to tend to. And I've been preparing the ground, not particularly well at the moment, in the garden, trying to get it flat and ready, and it's hard work. But as I've worked preparing this space, I felt the Spirit just prompting me. And the Spirit's been saying to me, what are you What are you and what is my church paving the way to? What are you paving the way to? How are we paving the way to the speaking of and the spread of the gospel? And when we pave, we we create the circumstances to enable something to happen or to be done. Are we familiar with the word pave? Yeah. And we need to remember that whenever we pave as Christians, 
and uh, Andrew certainly alluded to this, we, we pave in partnership. See, the Spirit, God, takes the weight of the paving stone, but he asks that we add our fingertips, that we add our desire, that we add our devotion, that we add our devotion to see people know the gospel, that we add some direction at times. He, had, he asked that we do a little bit of the foundation work. He asked that we do seek. Philippians 2.13 uh, says this, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So let me encourage you to hold this tension well. We need to work. We are to work hard. But we are also under the kingship and the leading of God and the Spirit. So we're going to do some paving. How do we pave towards the cross of Jesus Christ? Well, we're going to start with P. And P is for passion. Do you know, I've always been slightly oh, cynical of the word passion. Oh, bit of an overused word, isn't it? Makes me think of people who, when I was worshipping in more charismatic churches, would hit me in the face as they were worshipping. <laughs> Do you know, I've had to come to repent of this attitude, though, because I've realised that passion, whether it be overt or, or more subtle, is essential to our Christian walk. It's essential. And it's really quite important when it comes to creating opportunities to talk to people about Jesus. And when we read Acts, when we read our passage, we, there's no doubt, is there, that this is a group of people who were profoundly passionate, profoundly compassionate, and they were profoundly moved to act. You cannot help but see that. And do you know what, folks? Where there's no passion, the church perishes. Do you know that in between 2010 and 2020, over 2,000 churches closed in the UK? And there'll be lots of reasons for that. I'm not an idiot. I know there are lots of reasons for that. But I can't help be convinced that there's something to do with a lack of passion. That church has become about heritage. It's about the building. It's become about a nice little service. That was a nice little service, wasn't it? I've heard that so many times. It's about the status quo. It's about a lack of consideration for the younger generation. But a general lack of passion also about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. A general lack of passion that this news is worth actually talking to other people about. Romans 12, 11 to 13 says, Never be lacking in zeal. I love that word, zeal. Zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. In other words, keep going, keep going, stay passionate. As Christians, we have in our hearts and in our minds the most contagious message of hope there is. I love Acts 16, I love when Lydia becomes a Christian, love that story. Because the next thing you read is when she's become a Christian is that she and the members of her household were baptized. And my takeaway from that is that Paul tells her about Jesus and it's just too good to keep to herself. She has to talk to her whole household. 
and they become and they're baptized. Do we have a passion for others that is evident in our words, our actions, our doctrine? Amy Carmichael wrote these lovely words. It says, give me love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay, the hope no disappointments tire, the passion that will burn like fire. Love, faith, hope, passion. They must, they must lead us to others. If we go back to that first question, what are you devoted to? In other words, we could ask the question, what are you passionate about? And how aware are we of what's forming us in our culture and society as we walk out that door? What are we going to come across? What's forming you and me is that we can be formed to desire things that God might not want us to be getting hold of. And what we've seen since the end of the Second World War is that there's been a gradual but fairly radical shift of being formed towards the self. I mean, do you feel this in yourself? Because I feel it every day. I feel it every single day. What's forming me? Form me, Father God. And of course now there's the most incredibly competent technology that compounds this, enables this. But 1 John 2.17 simply says this, doesn't it? The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Every day we're being formed by what we read, by what we hear, by what we see. I think there's a battle of the minds out there, guys. I really do. And the Bible says, do not conform to the patterns of this world. And for every good and life-giving thing that you read in the Bible or in a devotion, in a talk, during worship, you're hearing so much more from the world. You're hearing so much more from the world, the media, the culture around it. So my question is, what's forming you right now in 2022? What is forming you right now? So how can we develop passion? <laughs> well, lots of ways. But I think we can learn a lesson from cows here. <laughs> I do. Do you know, cows ruminate. Cows ruminate. They chew the cud. Cows are passionate about the cud. Because they chew it, then it goes into a stomach. Then they bring it back up. But they do this repeatedly. Do you know how many stomachs a cow's got? Four. Four. I didn't know that. My youngest daughter knew that. <laughs> but what's my point? My point is that cows absorb all the goodness from what they're taking in, and then they bring it up and have another thing, and then they put it down again, and then they bring it up. And do you know what? Cows get in trouble, serious trouble, if they're ruminating on the wrong stuff. That's not healthy, that's not good. What are you ruminating on at the moment that is producing an increasing passion for Jesus. I'll say that again. What are you ruminating on at the moment that is producing an increasing passion for Jesus? A. A is for anointed. Folks, I've really felt prompted to tell us this morning that we're an anointed people. An anointed people. I want to remind you that you're anointed. When we go back to Acts 4, again, I love Acts, but I love the part when Peter and John are in front of the religious leaders, these highly educated members of the Sanhedrin that was the kind of the, the, uh, the ruling body, and they're filled with the Spirit, and they are, they're clearly talking words of God, 
And these teachers of the law, the Sanhedrin, what do they say? They say, hang on, these, these are unschooled, ordinary men. That's Acts 4.13. These are unschooled, ordinary men. In other words, they're like us. They're just ordinary people. They're pretty average. And when we compare the likes of Peter to the Pharisees, we see some quite clear differences, don't we? I mean, the Pharisees knew a lot, but Jesus didn't really give them much credit for that. The disciples didn't know as much, but they followed Jesus and they obeyed. Yeah, not perfectly, but they, they obeyed. These are the people, they are the ones that Jesus took a special interest in and gave the great commission to. They were anointed, you are anointed. And so what we see, what we experience, is that God takes our simple, average lives and he blows through them by the wind of his spirit to release kingdom gifts that when brought together with others, of course, I love that that message of unity, will change things, will transform Farsley, Pudsey, Stanningley, Bramley. And so I want to remind you, I'm going to keep saying this, you're anointed. But part of that anointing is that we, we are to go out, so it benefits those who don't yet know. And 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22 says this, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I want to remind you that you're also priests. They were anointed too, weren't they? 1 Peter 2.9 says, But all Christians, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You're anointed. We are priests. And you know, as I was preparing for this, I felt that brokenness was really quite important for some of us to consider today. You know, there's something about us needing to be broken at times, to be more, that enables us to be more open to anointing. I hope this makes some sense. We can sometimes forget that God can use us most in our brokenness, and brokenness can let the Spirit in, and that can change us and actually make us seek the broken even more. Luke 7, 36 to 39, I just, it's just a beautiful story, isn't it? Let's read it together. It says, when... When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. In other gospel accounts of this, we read the fragrance filled the room. You know, is our heart broken for others? Are we broken enough that we may press into him more? Broken so that our fragrance fills the room, those rooms that we're going to be going into. So only when the jar was broken, only when the jar was broken did the fragrance fill the room. And as a somewhat repressed Englishman, <laughs> this is really important to me. It's been a pretty regular prayer. And although it's been slightly embarrassing, and you guys have witnessed that, when the tears come because of the Holy Spirit, and they do, and what it's doing in me, whether it's convicting me or counseling me, bringing me into truth, putting lost sheep in my heart, I welcome it. I didn't always, because I thought it was a bit embarrassing. But I, I thank God for those tears, because I know I need those tears. 
Someone once said there could be no revival when Mrs. Amen and Mr. Wet Eyes are not found in the audience. Are we moved to tears for the sake of the gospel? Tears that form from urgency for desire of revival? Tears of gratitude for what's been done for us on the cross? Let me encourage you to press into this, pray into this. But there's something about being broken which we powerfully see throughout the Bible that I really want you to take away over this summer. I mean, Jesus, what did he do? He took the two loaves and the fishes from the boy and he broke it. He had to break it. Then and only then does it go to feed the crowd. Jesus' body broken for us. A is for anointed. V, B is for vision. There are some really good questions I think you can ask your brothers and sisters in Christ. What is God speaking to you about at the moment? It's a good one. What part of your character is he shaping? That's another good one. What is he giving you vision for? I think that's another good one as well. And in the context of today, there's a nice little phrase that I came across which says this, a vision without a task makes a visionary. In other words, it never goes beyond thinking. A vision without a task makes a visionary. A task without a vision is drudgery. A vision with a task makes a missionary. A vision with a task makes a missionary. So I wonder what your vision for church is, for your relationship with Jesus. What he said about going out and making disciples. I wonder if your church experience is a little bit, at times, tinged with consumerism, because that's something that forms us, isn't it? A lot of consumerism out there. I wonder if you ever find yourself leaving on a Sunday thinking, ah, not so much a fan of the worship today. By the way, thank you, Faye. I thought you led us to the throne room so well today. I just want to say that's nothing to do with that. But do we ask that question? You might leave out that Jack chap, he was a bit OTT, wasn't he? He was a bit too passionate. Isn't that evangelism stuff the kind of thing he should be doing? Don't I just turn up on a Sunday? Do we listen with a critical ear or a heart that wants to be changed to be more like Jesus? And here's a question in terms of where you are currently at with your faith and the outworkings of it. My question is, are these your preferences or are they God's preferences? Is your vision aligned with God's? Because if you're like me, which I suspect you are, God's vision can sometimes be a little bit different to ours. But this is why prayer is one of those practices that we need to be devoted to because God speaks to us through prayer and can recalibrate. Do we have a passion and a vision to see beyond our current limitations and restrictions, whether that's internal or external? Do you know, more and more people are working from home, aren't they? It makes it harder to engage with these people. So what do we do? Do we have an Isaiah spirit of send me Lord or do we have a Jonah spirit? No thanks, I'll go in the other direction. Do you know... I really dislike gyms. I think they're torture chambers. Um, but for the last term, I've been dropping off one of my daughters uh, off at Valet, and right next to the, the Ballet School, so that's what you call it, there's a, an entrance to the gym right next to it. And I've had a few chats with gym goers and the people who work there. I like to chat to various people. And I felt this slight nagging, this prompt to join that gym. <laughs> Even though I don't want to. But do you know what, on a serious point, that prompting is saying, Jack, you're surrounded by too many Christians. Jack, there are people in that gym that need to hear about my kingdom 
and the kind of king I am. So what do we have vision for? And what limitations have you set? So V is for vision. E is for eternity. What we do in life echoes in eternity. What's the film? Gladiator, yeah, I need to talk like that, so I Russell Crowe. What do we do in life echoes in eternity. Do you know, God's really been speaking to me about eternity in this last year or so. I've been challenged about my fixation on this life rather than what I do in readiness for the life to come. And therefore, how much time I spend doing things that reflect that. I'm just going to repeat that. I've been challenged about my fixation on this life rather than what I need to do in readiness for the life to come. And how much time I therefore spend doing things that reflect that. And we come back to what is forming us in our culture. One of the strongest grips that our culture has is of the self and of individualism. And it whispers, it's all about this life. It's about living your best life. I've heard that so many times this last year. Your best life. Don't give time to that. Focus on you. What's your best life? Folks, don't ever forget we're playing in the devil's playground. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And I think a fixation on this life is one of Satan's most successful tactics. And I've been challenged um, to be thinking hundreds of years ahead, actually. <laughs> Both for my immediate family, but for you guys, my church family, you know, we will be gone. We're going to be gone, but what's this building going to be doing in 100 years, 200 years' time? What's our legacy going to be? It's on my heart. Is it on yours? There's this lovely story. It's about my wife, Mez, and one of her relatives. She had a relative called Francis Tamblin. And in 1780... Francis Tamblin heard John Wesley speak in the flesh. And he spoke from Luke 13, when Jesus says, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. And the story goes like this. That night, he didn't sleep. And in the morning, he kneels by his bed, and he commits his life to God, and he finds release and peace. He prays for his family line to be faithful, and this is, I quote, the fourth and fifth generation, and as long as foot or hoof be left on the earth. He realized straight away that the future generations needed the same thing. And you know, as in the generation since have stood in the slipstream of that prayer, they've stood in the slipstream of that prayer, not one has fallen away. That's amazing. Matthew 5.12 says, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Folks, let's not get too attached to this world. Let's remember that there's an eternity to come, and we are to seek, go, and, and pave whilst we are here, whilst we can. We, we, we need to pave the way to the King's cross. And I want to leave you just with a thought, which is about summer learning loss. I've mentioned this to some of the team, but it's been on my heart for a while. You know, summer learning loss um, in education is that concern, isn't it? Oh, they're off for six weeks. The kids are going to forget lots of things. I've got some teachers nodding, thinking, oh, yeah, I'll have to recap everything in September. But guys, let's, let's not fall prey to summer learning loss. 
Because at times I confess, and I've had to repent of being a term-time-only Christian. For me, summer has been and can be a spiritual drought. I can lose momentum. And it's funny because historically I've had even more time to devote myself to these things. And I think it's probably the same for us. Things slow down a little bit. You know, what we're going to do now, um, we're going to pray. We're going to pray with those people around us. And let's not forget what it says in Acts 2, 42 to 47. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. We've got prayer in common. We've got so many things in common. So let's, let's be honest. Let's not be worrying about other people. What is it that you need to pray about alongside others this morning? 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to maybe even move. And I'll give you some pointers. That's where you can just come up. Perhaps you want to pray for more time to devote yourself to prayer, to fellowship, to communion, and the teaching of the apostles. That's one thing. You might want to be praying for passion. Perhaps your passion's been dulled for whatever reason. Perhaps your prayer needs to be, Spirit, reignite my passion. Perhaps you want to be praying for opportunities this summer. I've had some (laughs) really interesting chats on holiday. You know, you're likely to have conversations with people that you're never going to see again in your life. So are you prepared to pave, even if it's just a little seed? Who knows what God can do with that? Ecclesiastes 3 says, God has set eternity on the hearts, our hearts. Do you want prayer that this would be a more urgent reality? Do your prayers need to go beyond next week, to the next generation, maybe even the next century? Do you you want to ask the people around you for a re-anointing or just to be anointed? Do you want to ask people around you that, I feel like my vision has been limited, Lord. Give me an expansive vision. Do you want to pray with someone about tying your colors to the mast? Do you know, as I was preparing this, I got a sense that there's someone here who's been dipping their toes in the water. They've been dipping their toes into faith for a while and now just needs to dive in. My encouragement to you is to surrender. If that is you, then pray with someone today. Ask for that most gracious of kings to enter your life. He will forgive. He will restore. And the word I have for you, whoever you are, is let yourself be loved. Let yourself be loved. So I'm going to hand over to to Faye. He's probably just going to provide some background music. But we've got five minutes, I think just to pray with each other, and then if we got a little bit of time after that to respond in a song, that would be great as well.